It's so sweet to be here with you all. I just want to say that before I begin. Um, I remember the moment years ago when I stood on this land, on this spot where this hall now is, and somehow knew that a meditation hall would grow here, and it has. And every now and then I just flash on that and how amazing it is to see um, you all here and that it's happened and now we're growing Buddhas. We grew the hall and now we're growing Buddhas and you all are the Buddhas in training. It's like a little greenhouse in here with (laughs) Buddhas in training growing. It's wonderful. So tonight, on this second day of retreat, I'd like to speak a little bit about uh, this form of practice, the Vipassana meditation retreat, as it's come to be called in the West, and how it, a little bit about how it, not so much about how it came to be, but more about the understanding in which it is rooted and how we can best use it for the time that we are here. Um, Because the conditions of retreat are really different from the conditions of our daily lives, and the the intention of retreat is quite different from the intention that much of the world operates by. So it's like entering a foreign country in some ways, coming into a retreat situation with its own kind of different landscape and culture and behaviors and rules. And it takes a while to get used to it. The understanding of uh, retreat practice is actually rooted in the understanding which the Buddha came to in his own journey of awakening. He went through a process of learning, learning by trial and error. He made mistakes and he learned from them. And out of that process, he eventually had his awakening and then was able to teach a way that he had found worked for him and can work for us. So I'd like to say a little bit about the Buddha's life, not too much, but as many of you know, he was born and raised as the prince of a king, and as such, he grew up with a lot of um, privilege and comfort and wealth and protection from many of the harsher realities of life. His king, his father, the king, actually wanted to protect him, so he would stay at home and become the heir that he wanted to carry on his uh, kingdom. So life in the palace was quite pleasurable, and he had Uh, you know, uh, every comfort that a person in that time could possibly want. But as the story goes, when the Buddha became a young adult, he became curious about life outside the palace walls. And so he 
persuaded a servant to take him outside the walls. And so the servant did. And as the story goes, the Buddha, it is said, saw for the first time in his young life what are called the four heavenly messengers. What were they, these four heavenly messengers? First, he saw an old person. He had never seen anybody old or aging. Everyone in the palace was young and vibrant and beautiful. He saw a sick person, somebody who was quite ill, and that shocked his mind. How can this happen to a human being? They get sick. He had never seen a sick person. Then he saw a corpse. He had never seen a corpse. If any of you have seen, for the first time when you see a dead person, it does something. It shocks you. It kind of, it does something to the mind. The fourth of the heavenly messengers was a holy person, a wandering sadhu, a person who seemed quite peaceful and at ease in the face of the knowledge of old age, sickness, and death. So these four sightings of the Buddha, these four events where he saw a reality that he had not seen before actually shocked his mind. Something in him, some level of denial, we could say, in our modern parlance, got broken through and he saw the truth in a way that was shocking to him. But it also awoke in him a desire to understand more, to go more deeply into the mystery of birth and death. You know, we all have come upon, at different times in our lives, heavenly messengers. We have all come upon moments of confronting some of life's deeper mysteries. Perhaps illness, perhaps loss, perhaps the birth of a child, perhaps death, perhaps meeting a person who seemed to have qualities of being that were particularly um, unusual or inspiring. When I look back on my own journey, I can say that I have met a number of heavenly messengers, and certainly the one I think of Uh, who really is responsible, I feel, for my going into practice, was uh, way back in the early 70s, I met a Tibetan Lama who was a refugee in this country. He had left Tibet and his family behind, his monastery, he'd lost everything. And he was truly one of the most joyful and compassionate beings I had ever come upon in my life. I was quite amazed. How could this be? A person who has lost everything and yet exuding such joy and compassion. He was a heavenly messenger in my life. Perhaps you can think of people or situations in your own life that have had that kind of impact on you.
So, having met these four heavenly messengers, the Buddha decided to do something very adventurous and daring, and that was to leave the palace, leave behind his life of luxury, and take up the life of a wandering ascetic, a wandering monk, which he did for a number of years. He threw off his, his princely um, attire and took up the simple robes of a wandering mendicant. He searched out teachers, met teachers who instructed him to practice very austerely, starving his body, denouncing all um, pleasure, all sense pleasure, trying to subdue his mind to get rid of all thinking. And he did this kind of practice, this very arduous ascetic practice for many years, or some years, until finally he just realized that it wasn't working, that he was still struggling. He realized he had not found the profound liberation which he intuited was actually possible. He had a thought, perhaps there is another way to find enlightenment. It was kind of an amazing thought because there was nobody else around him who you know, would have supported his going his own way. But something in him said, there's got to be another way. And so he remembered in that moment a time as a child when he was sitting at ease in the cool shade of a rose apple tree in the fields with his father. And in that easeful tranquility and harmony of nature, he remembered he had had quite a mystical vision of oneness with the world. And he thought that more easeful approach might actually be closer to what he was looking for. So he gave up his austerities and his struggle to tame his mind, and he began to nourish his body. By this time, he'd gotten very thin. Very, you sometimes see these statues of the Buddha with his ribs showing, and his, you can see from the front of his body to the back, he's so absolutely skeletal. But in this turning of his, his attention, he began to nourish his body, he began to eat better, he began to regain his strength. And then he resolved with this newfound physical energy and to sit down under a Bodhi tree. And he vowed not to arise until he had found the liberation that he had intuited was possible. And so he did. And so we are here, learning about a way of practice based on his approach of moderation not going to extremes, what is called in Buddhism the middle way. In his first discourse after his enlightenment, the Buddha said, there are two extremes that ought not to be cultivated. What two? There is devotion to the pursuit of pleasure in sensual desires, 
and there is devotion to self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, and harmful. The middle way discovered by the perfect one avoids both these extremes. It gives vision, gives knowledge, and leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to, na- to nirvana. So in his own life experience, what the Buddha had learned was that a life of wealth and comfort and ease was not conducive to awakening, nor was a life of severe austerity. The way which actually supported insight into the nature of things was a moderate approach in which there was not too much pleasure or too much austerity. It's a very pragmatic approach because when we think about it, we can see this in our own experience. When we have too much comfort, too much pleasure, what happens? We get kind of dull, complacent. When we have too much difficulty or stress in our lives, we get completely overwhelmed. Peace or calmness is not possible. It is often said that this realm of existence which we live in, the human realm, is the perfect place for awakening to occur. Why? Because we have just enough pleasure to seduce us into being present and just enough pain to keep us being surprised and challenged. Can you see the truth of this in your own life? So this retreat is based on this understanding and it is an expression of this middle way. As we discover when we come on retreat, we have comfort, but not too much. We have difficulty and deprivation in some ways, but not too much. We have just the right balance to keep us relaxed and yet challenged. In such conditions, we can be both present and we can open to the challenges. We find this middle way sometimes by going to extremes in our lives, don't we? We try an extreme approach to something. It doesn't work. It's okay to go to extremes as long as we know that there is another way, there is a middle way. I've been teaching a class uh, here at Spirit Rock in the other Spirit Rock down below there (laughs) on cultivating simplicity, which is looking at the whole sort of planetary situation and living in a culture of consumerism and what practice has to say about cultivating a real quality of simplicity in our lives. And there was a man in the class last week who um, spoke and he, he told a story about himself. He said he got so inspired by the whole simplicity movement at a certain point that he decided to sell everything, all his house and his car and all his possessions and go to a monastery, which he did. He got to the monastery, it was very austere, very rigorous, and he hated it. He just thought it wasn't for him at all. He felt just completely unhappy there. 
So he left the monastery. He went back and he had to rebuy everything, which had by then had increased in price. So he had to buy back his house and his car and his possession. But he realized through this that he needed to find a middle way right in the midst of his life, that going to extremes was not the answer. So sometimes we do go to extremes, but to know that the middle way is possible that we can find it, and that that's what leads to actual transformation. So, one of the challenges on retreat, and it's a very um, immediate and pervasive challenge, is the challenge of learning to attend to our experience in a moment-to-moment way. This is the practice of mindfulness or bare attention. Learning to attend to the unfolding process of our experience. Most of the time, our usual way of attending to our experience is to think about it. We think about our experience. The Buddha called this unwise attention. And he contrasted it to the way of mindfulness, which he called wise attention to bring this kind of way of seeing our experience. It's not the usual way that we see our experience, but to begin to understand that we're cultivating in mindfulness this way of seeing in a moment-to-moment way the unfolding of our whole mind and body process. And in that learning, learning what? Learning how we suffer, what conditions lead to more suffering, and what conditions lead to a lessening or easing of our suffering. Very early on in my practice, um, which was back at Insight Meditation Society, there was a teacher named Munindraji, who had been Joseph's, one of Joseph's main teachers when he practiced in India, and he was a a wonderful, um, uh, energetic, enthusiastic, um, totally devoted teacher of this practice who had lived in India most of his life and told a story one night about his students in Bodh Gaya, many of whom were peasant women who had no you know, knowledge, the kind of book knowledge that we tend to have in the West. And they were very simple, you know, earthy people. And he would tell these wonderful stories about how they would come to him and he would give them the instructions and mindfulness and they would go home and they would practice very diligently in their uh, homes and would have wonderfully liberating insights. Now, Hearing that, to my Western mind, was, it was quite an awakening because I had always thought, you know, you needed to read books and learn in that kind of university way. And so I had pursued a PhD in psychology and, and thought that was a way. And it was an interesting way, but it certainly didn't lead to the very profound insights that doing this very simple practice can lead to. 
The gifts of our practice really come from our sincere efforts to be completely present with our experience, one breath at a time, one step at a time. While we're doing it, it may not seem like much, but through the continuity of doing it, insights arise which can be very deeply nourishing and freeing. Because I know many of you know this already, but it is worth repeating that in this direct contact with our own experience, once we have seen something, we know it very deeply and no one can take it away from us. It becomes a part of our lived experience, our knowing of how things are. I'd like to share a a yogi note that um, I received on a recent retreat, which really illustrates this completely simple and yet very profound moment of awakening that happens to us as we practice. The note said, Dear Anna, I would like to share this little gem of a lesson today. I was sitting, feeling very expansive, neutral, and open, when in walked and sat behind me the swallower. Perhaps you know this person. The woman is sick and has to suck throat lozenges, so she swallows constantly. Every time she swallowed, my expansiveness would contract, and I would feel the suffering of needing to get away from this sound. Why, I wonder, does this sound not just pass through me? Oh, I thought, my resistance is causing suffering. I'll try really opening to the sound and observe its effect on me. So I sat, feeling like a great sea anemone, just waiting for a tender morsel to come into my field of awareness. The swallow came, shivered up my back, then down my belly, vanished and left in its wake a tremble which gently moved through me. Not so bad, I thought, even kind of interesting. The next time the swallow came, the sequence was less intense until finally her swallows were completely neutral. Wow, how liberating. Big smile. Now that kind of simple, direct experience is never found in reading books about spiritual enlightenment. It comes from this willingness to sit and be present moment to moment. So I'd like to say a few things about how we can best use this retreat situation. Obviously, we learn, we can learn a lot from the instructions. We give on a retreat a lot of time and attention to the formal practice of sitting and walking. The sitting and walking practices provide actually the basic structure of the retreat, and they help to keep our life here very simple. Through the simple structure, we learn what mindfulness is 
and we taste what it means to renounce our usual habits and distractions. Sometimes the first few days we feel the loss of our usual habits and distractions very acutely. We look at this schedule and it may seem extremely daunting, extremely, uh, we may find ourselves feeling some resistance to the idea that that's all there is, sitting and walking and then sitting again. And so our mind may have a tantrum or two. Perhaps you've experienced that since you've been here. You may really just think, I don't want to sit. No, I just don't want to do it. I don't want to walk. No, I want to do something else. This is the mind just resisting, having to let go of its usual ways of distracting itself. So we may feel that we're rebelling. We may decide to do our own thing, or we may suddenly feel that the retreat needs our suggestions for improvement, and so we think of all these lists of, to give the managers about ways to improve the situation here. We may do all kinds of things in reaction to this uh, invitation to keep our life so simple, to sit and to walk. If you are feeling resistance, you may want to start with something a little less daunting. Try doing the schedule in smaller chunks. Just try doing a sitting and a walking without a break. Start there instead of looking at the whole day and the whole schedule and feeling overwhelmed. Or try doing a sitting a walking, and another sitting without a break. What would that be like? Explore it. Try it out. See for yourself. In this way, you can start slowly but steadily building a momentum of mindfulness that will make the coming days easier. You can also begin to notice the resistance itself. Begin to notice if you believe its story. What is it telling you? Are you believing it? Or can we notice the resistance and go ahead and sit anyway? Go ahead and walk anyway? Now, just as we have routines at home, we also develop retreat routines. And we tend to get very attached to our retreat routines. Some of you who've been here for a month may know what I'm speaking about. There was one retreat some many years ago where the two teachers took away everybody's watches and they hid all the clocks and they took down the schedule and they didn't let anybody know what was going to happen next. <laughs> they had all the bells with them and so sometimes they would have sittings that lasted for 15 minutes, and sometimes they'd have sittings that lasted for an hour, but you never knew. <laughs> there were also no assigned seats in the hall, so every time you came in, you'd go to whatever seat was available, not your treasured little <laughs> island spot there on the floor, home. 
Sometimes they had an early lunch. Sometimes they had a very late lunch. Can you imagine being on such a retreat? I think if we offered retreats like that, nobody would come, frankly. <laughs> we like our, our comfortable retreat habits, and we especially like knowing what's going to happen next. So we learn about ourselves from the instructions and the invitation to keep our lives simple through the formal practice. We can also learn from all the conditions that the retreat presents us with. The silence, working with the precepts, being alone in a continuous way, our work meditation, what occurs in the living quarters, perhaps with our roommates or with the other yogis. We can learn from the way in which we begin to make up stories about the other people here. All of these are best seen as ways of learning about ourselves. In fact, it is useful to see the entire retreat situation as a kind of mirror. A mirror which reflects back to us our tendencies, our habits, our preferences, our opinions, our expectations. What amplifies this is the silence and the aloneness. Because in that, we begin to notice things about ourselves which are overlooked when we are busy and distracted. We might begin to notice how judgmental we are, or impatient, or obsessed with planning or worry. In the mirror of meditation, we see our mind's tendencies. Now, no one is instructing you, you know, to obsess about the past or worry about the future. The mind does it all by itself, doesn't it? Even with your best intentions to keep staying with the breath, to keep coming back to stepping, the mind has a mind of its own. It just races around and takes you on a journey, it seems. We can't stop this mind from doing what it does, and we're not here to try to stop the mind. We're here to understand the nature of the mind, to see as best we can how it is that this mind does work, how it has a mind of its own, and how we can notice it with mindfulness, with kindness, and with forgiveness until we become very intimate with our mind's tendencies. Our mind, you know, can, can become like the eccentric old friend whose foibles we, we forgive and tolerate. We can stop being so surprised and outraged at the antics of our mind. So seeing all the situations of the retreat as a kind of mirror of our mind's tendencies. This is helpful. This makes this whole situation very rich. Not that it's always pleasant, but we can begin to see the richness of what we are learning here. It can also free us with one of the preoccupations we sometimes have on retreat with doing it right. You know, we 
always, we are conditioned actually, you know, from a very young age to do things right. And we come into a new situation and we can become very preoccupied. Well, what, what is the right way to do it? What is the right way to sit? What is the right way to walk? And so we can imagine in looking around that everybody else, of course, is doing it right except for ourselves. But this preoccupation is, is really uh, extra. We can be sure we're doing it right when we are simply coming back and noticing moment to moment what is occurring. In some ways, this returning is a very deep remembering, we could say, of a very natural way of being. A natural way of being. I mean, we all breathe. We all hear. We all sense. We all eat. We all feel. We are all equally human in this way. Sometimes people experience a retreat, especially in the first few days, as some kind of punishment or as a bitter medicine which they take, you know, knowing that it's good for you and it will lead to some future happiness. It is difficult at times, especially the first few days, but over time it is also possible to experience an increased sense of well-being and joy and happiness. And undoubtedly many of you have already experienced this or will in the days ahead. Often the experience of the retreat as punishment means that we are judging ourselves. If you are having such an experience, perhaps you are judging your experience. Or maybe you are imagining that others are judging you. Either of these mind states can very easily lead to feeling like this you are in the middle of some sort of punitive experience. There was a woman who came on retreat after a few days, she came and she told me, she said that she, reali- she had had an insight. She had, real- she had thought that her two roommates were mad at her because they weren't talking to her. <laughs> and then she realized that that was because that was the way it was in her family. As a child, silence meant somebody was mad at you. So she had been projecting this out onto the whole retreat. Everybody's mad at me. They're not talking to me. Another woman had said a similar thing in the sense that she had felt nobody was looking at her. They weren't making eye contact because they didn't like her, evidently. The same kind of insight. So these conditions of retreat, of silence and no eye contact, are not meant to be a comment on our desirability or Um, as a human being, our lovability as human beings, but rather they are part of the discipline, this very simple discipline of staying with our own experience. Staying with our own experience. Sometimes our mindfulness can carry a a judging quality. There There was a man who reported his experience of walking meditation 
He had heard the instruction about noting the movement of the foot, lifting, moving, placing. He heard himself saying, lifting, moving, failing. Lifting, moving, failing. That's kind of a bleak experience. (laughs) Now, others may see the retreat as sort of the cause of their suffering. You know, they were fine before they got here. And ever since they've been here, you know, it's been pretty miserable. You know, if only I could talk, I'm sure I'd feel a lot better. I really should have brought that good book I've been meaning to read, or at least my journal so I could start in on my memoirs. Or I don't know how I'm going to make it without coffee, or I really need some chocolate. That would really cheer me up. We begin to, you know, yearn for that life we left behind where we had all our, our comfort foods and people to um, assure us and distract us from ourselves. A retreat can be stressful at the beginning. It's like we're all going through, through a withdrawal together. We're withdrawing from our usual familiar objects that keep us um, comfortable and reassured. When these objects disappear, what happens? We kind of go into, we may feel depressed, we may feel insecure, we may feel angry, we may feel helpless. The good news is that this withdrawal is temporary, you will get through it, and there is another side. On the other side of this withdrawal is the opportunity actually to discover a source of happiness that is not dependent on the presence of so much external, situ- external stimulation. Imagine being happy without chocolate. Wow, liberation. So, a retreat is not meant to be viewed as punishment, nor is it the cause of our difficulties. It is rather a mirror which shows us our habits, our tendencies, our opinions, our preferences, shows us our expectations, the gap which can exist between how we want something to be and how it actually is. We may have had some expectations about how the retreat was supposed to be, and instead we get to have the actual experience of how it is. Which may include looking at how we set ourselves up with these expectations for disappointment. So here we are, and we can complain, we can resist, we can struggle with the conditions of a retreat, or we can see more clearly all the ways in which our attention itself gets fixated and bound. I'd like to share a story that I've told many times on retreat, and I apologize if some of you have heard it before, but I have often been told it is such a helpful story that I feel inclined to tell it again. It involves my dog, Max. I have a small, energetic Jack Russell Terrier. If any of you know Jack Russell Terriers, they're quite uh, expressive and energetic little dogs. Well, when my dog was 
quite still quite young, probably a year or so. I was living in Berkeley and I took him downtown one day and had him on a leash and we were wandering around and I was shopping and I thought I'd like to go in a little cafe and get some iced tea to go. So I very optimistically tied Max up to a plastic chair that happened to be on the sidewalk and went on into the store and thinking he would be the model dog, you know, he would just sit there and wait calmly for me. Well, not to be. Instead, I got into the store and hadn't been in there too long when I suddenly heard this big commotion outside and turned around to see Max dashing up the street, dragging the plastic chair behind him and barking at it at the same time. (laughs) I think we are all like this somehow. (laughs) We drag these habits around and bark at them at the same time. So what habit of yours are you dragging around with you? Becoming aware of it is the first step in diminishing its hold on you. One of the gifts of being on retreat and another condition of retreat from which that we can learn a lot from is the condition of being alone, being alone in a continuous way. You know, our culture is fairly extroverted and being alone is often associated with, you know, sort of being a social misfit or a social failure of some kind. The poet Naomi Nye wrote a poem called The Art of Disappearing. When they say, don't I know you, say no. When they invite you to the party, remember what parties are like before answering. Someone telling you in a loud voice they once wrote a poem. Greasy sausage balls on a paper plate. Then reply. If they say, we should get together, say, why? (laughs) It's not that you don't love them anymore. You're trying to remember something too important to forget. Trees the monastery bell at twilight. Tell them you have a new project. It will never be finished. When someone recognizes you in a grocery store, nod briefly and become a cabbage. When someone you haven't seen in 10 years appears at the door, don't start singing him all your new songs. You will never catch up. Walk around feeling like a leaf. Know you could tumble any second. Then decide what to do with your time. You have all decided that disappearing from your life for a month or two is a good thing to do, and I would support that. What do we learn in being alone? Quite a lot. because we are letting go of so much. We are letting go of our habits of dependency on others. We are learning to rely on ourselves in a very profound and continuous way throughout the day. And with that comes a tremendous confidence, a tremendous confidence in our capacity to meet life, 
In the first three-month course I sat, which was back in 1980, I had already gotten my PhD in psychology and I had been in therapy and I, you know, thought I'd kind of handled the past and that was done and now I was ready to move on. So in the course of sitting that three-month retreat, I was amazed to find myself feeling a level of fear which arose in my practice that being therapeutically oriented I thought meant something was really wrong and that I really needed a therapist. Well, my teachers, being wiser than I, gave me the simple instructions which we will give to you of staying with the fear, of being with it, noticing its story in the mind, feeling the sensations of it in the body, learning to sit with it, know that I could be with it. And I did. I followed the instructions and it was very intense at times. But I learned so much from that experience, not from going to a therapist and having somebody hold my hand, but just sitting there and breathing with it, allowing the fear to unfold and go on its way. I learned that I could survive fear. That was a tremendous turning point in my practice. If I could survive fear, I figured I could survive most anything. So in this being alone, we are thrown back on our inner resources. And what I call the inner teacher begins to awaken in us. There you are, all by yourself, sitting in silence, And there may be times when you're sleepy, times when you're restless, times when you're peaceful or calm or dull or craving or irritated. Or And you just keep sitting. And the voice of the inner teacher begins to be heard. It may say some very simple things like, just come back to the breath. What a novel idea, just come back to the breath, just breathe, it's okay. One of the uh, instructions I've carried for years is from a teacher who said, just say to yourself, this is the way it is right now. This is the way it is right now. Well, that is doable. This is the way it is right now. In a moment, it may be different. Can I just be with this right now? In this way, we become our own guide through all the ups and downs of our experience in a way that no teacher or therapist or best friend or mate or parent can ever really do for us. Then there is what is called the noble silence that we all are uh, living in together. The same Indian teacher I spoke about before, Manindraji, one night just told us that there are 92 kinds of silence that the classical texts talk about. Now, lucky for you, we're not going to go through that particular list. We will go through other lists, but not that list. But isn't that a wondrous thing to contemplate, that there have been beings on the earth that could explore silence to that fine degree that they could say there are 92 kinds of silence. 
Certainly silence is a universal spiritual discipline. All traditions speak of it. One of the Christian desert fathers said, if you love truth, be a lover of silence. Silence like the sunlight will illuminate you in God and will deliver you from the phantoms of ignorance. For most of us at first, silence may seem like quite a discipline. It may seem like quite an unnatural way to be, especially when we are all moving through the day together. But as we relax into it, we may find that it allows for a deeper connection in which we actually come alive to ourselves and to the world around us. When we are busy talking and using words, we are seeking connection. We often find that connection more profoundly in silence. So that we discover that silence is not a disconnect from others, but actually a doorway to a deeper communion with other beings, as well as with ourselves. Rumi said, your old life was a frantic running from silence. Now let the speechless full moon appear. Silence can be a powerful ally on retreat. It is not only a mirror of our small chattering mind with all of its complaints and cravings and fantasies, but it also mirrors to us our spacious mind. In the silence, we can connect also with that natural spacious quality of mind, which can hold the totality of our experience without being affected by any of it. In this silence, we may come to recognize the knowing power of the mind, that which knows without any words, any comment, any analysis or judgment. Tony Packer wrote, the mystery, the essence of all life is not separate from the silent openness of simple listening. The more silent we become, the deeper our listening becomes. So to see the silence actually as a a presence that is with us, an ally in our journey. Lastly, it's helpful to notice how we think about meditation practice as we are on retreat, because how we think about it will actually influence how we actually experience it. For example, if we think of meditation practice as a very long and arduous path, which is developed very slowly over time, then we might give a lot of thought to planning our future career as meditators. You know, I'll do a 10-day retreat every six months, and then I'll go for the next three-month course at IMS, and then I'll go to Asia and visit all the monasteries, and then I'll, maybe I'll train as a teacher, and then I'll be able to share all my insights with people. This is actually just another kind of planning thought. 
maybe one that inspires you and excites you, but just another trick of the mind to take us away from this present moment. If we think of meditation as a way to get rid of everything we don't like and only have the good, the pleasant, and the beautiful as our constant companions, our striving and struggle will never come to an end. Can we instead think of mindfulness practice as cultivating the art of seeing? Cultivating the art of seeing and being with what is moment to moment. If we think of mindfulness as this cultivation of the art of seeing, then we can return to this present moment with some sense of what it offers us. We can continually return to the immediate, alive, mysterious now, which is always with us. This now, this eternally present moment, is what the Buddha called the one fortunate attachment, not to be given up. If you're going to be attached to something, be attached to the now, this moment. This now is the place of practice. The beginning of the path is now, the middle of the path is now, the fruition of the path is now. There is no better moment in which to awaken than the one right here and now. So I'd like to end with a poem called Hokusai Says. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there is no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it. Repeat yourself as long as it is interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says every one of us is frightened. He says every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says live with the world inside of you. He says it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and the grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that you attend to the life that lives itself through you. So I've gone on a little bit long tonight. (laughs) Thank you for your patience.
This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Insight Meditation Society on March 5, 2001. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.